If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew 17. Uh, We're going to look at verses 1 to 13 this morning. This is an amazing passage, Uh, not unlike uh, Revelation 5, which we looked at at the beginning of the service, and Ezekiel 1. Here we get a direct human encounter with God. Uh, It is astounding in its glory and its majesty. So listen to this. This is God's word for us this morning, Matthew 17, verses 1 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask God for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what we should believe or how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word. And we pray now that you would send us your spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, that you would speak words of challenge and comfort to us. Show us our Savior, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I grew up in the church, and we used to talk about, when I was growing up, we would talk about mountaintop experiences. Mountaintop experiences were frequently uh, Christian experiences that you would have, like at the end of a camp, uh, or at the end of a retreat. It was this moment of, of clarity. Uh, of of sort of an emotional and a spiritual high, like maybe you saw the gospel more clearly or you saw yourself more truly, but it was this amazing spiritual high. But then you would go home. And and your goal was you wanted to keep it up. Like it felt like something momentous had happened and you were going to keep up this emotional and this spiritual high, but then you would like have to be around other people. Again, 
I remember one time coming home from camp and I was like on the, like walking on the moon. I was so like, yes, for Jesus. And I walked in the front door of my house and turned and I knocked this like antique glass ornament off the table in the entryway and it just shattered. And I was like, there we go. Already off the mountain. Took seven minutes. This passage today tells us about a mountaintop experience that three of the disciples had with Jesus. And I think in doing so, it actually teaches us some profound things about the nature of the Christian life, the life of walking with Jesus. So let's look through uh, the passage, think about what is happening here in the story, and then we're going to spend just a few moments thinking about uh, what this shows us about the Christian life. Verses 1 to 3 tell us that this passage takes place six days after the passage that has immediately preceded, uh, which if you remember we talked about two weeks ago. Uh, In that passage, uh, Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then Peter also decided that he should rebuke Jesus when Jesus started talking about uh, his suffering at the hands of the religious leaders of the day. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus tells the disciples, if you're going to follow me, if, if you're going to be my disciples, you have to pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. It has been six days since that conversation. And what Jesus does is he takes Peter and James and John up on this mountain. And when he goes up there, Jesus is transfigured, the passage tells us. He looks like God. His appearance changes. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become white as light. Moses and Elijah, arguably two of the most important figures in the Old Testament, show up and are talking to Jesus. Like what is happening here is the veil is being pulled back and what is most true about Jesus is being revealed. Jesus is being revealed here in his glory as the second person of the divine trinity. You see, he's being described in the same ways that the ancient of days, this figure from Daniel 7 is described, whose clothing was white as snow, whose hair on his head was like pure wool. Jesus is being described in the same way that God is described in the Old Testament. The The deity of Christ is on full display here. The Nicene Creed says we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Christians, this is your Savior, God Himself is the one who has rescued us from sin and death. The disciples here got a glimpse of the divine glory of the Son of God. Imagine it. Breathtaking. And not only do they see Jesus in his glory, but Moses and Elijah show up, who represent there the law and the prophets, and they are talking to Jesus. 
In fact, in Luke's account of this same passage, they are talking to Jesus about the exodus he is about to accomplish. The exodus means this great saving event. They are talking to Jesus about what Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do to rescue his people from their slavery to sin and death. This is the culmination of redemptive history. That's why Moses and Elijah being their matters, the law and the prophets are testifying to what Christ is about to do. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 1. When he says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. This is it. This is what the entire Bible to this point has been waiting on. And Peter decides to talk. As you might imagine, Peter frequently decides to talk. Verse 4 says that Peter speaks, Lord, this is excellent. I'm glad that we're here. Uh, I will make tents. Uh, I'll make one for you. I'll make one for Moses. I'll make one for Elijah. And me, Peter, James, me, James, and John will we'll bunk up with, with some of y'all. He is ready to go. Peter is thinking, like, this is it. Mark's account says, uh, as Peter's talking, he did not know what he was saying, uh, which is accurate. Uh, That's just a good rule of thumb for Peter at this point in redemptive history. You remember last week we talked about how Peter is hoping that there's a bloodless path to glory. You know, Peter is hoping that there can be redemption, that there can be salvation, that they can be deliverance apart from the gruesome reality of the cross. He is still hoping, and so he's thinking, great, I'm seeing Jesus in his glory. This must be it. I've got glory, and there's been no suffering, no rejection. Peter's thinking he has miraculously gotten to avoid the very thing Jesus told him he could not avoid, not a week earlier. In verses 5 and 6, while Peter is talking, God interrupts him. That's amazing to think about. Like Peter's just blurting something out and God talks. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's kind of an amazing message from God. In Matthew's gospel, God speaks twice directly from heaven. Uh, And in both places that he does that, he says the exact same thing. He's talking about Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And, And here he says it at the end of Christ's ministry. Jesus is getting ready to go into Jerusalem where he will be rejected and suffer and die and be raised from the dead. This is the very end of his earthly ministry. The other place that God says that same thing is at the very beginning of Christ's earthly ministry at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The only difference is this time he adds a word, and I think he adds it just for Peter. Uh, And because he adds it for Peter, he also adds it for us, which is listen, Peter. Listen to him. My beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. As this happens, as they are overshadowed with this cloud of glory and God himself speaks, Peter suddenly realizes this is not the camping trip he thought it was going to be. 
And so Peter, it says, and the other disciples uh, are filled with fear and they fall on their faces. But that's not the end of the story. Because it says that Jesus comes to them in verses 7 and 8 and touches them. You can imagine these guys lying like they're dead on their faces, which is the, the connotation of what has happened here. Jesus comes and touches them and says, rise, don't be afraid. And they lift up their eyes and see Jesus alone. And then Jesus takes them off the mountain. They descend the mountain together, and in verses 9 to 13, they have a conversation about what has just happened. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this vision until I have been raised from the dead. But the disciples are saying, I don't understand. The the Bible says that Elijah has to come before the Messiah, and he was just here, and now he's gone. So help me understand why Elijah, what Elijah's role in all of this is. And Jesus explains to them, Elijah does come before the Messiah comes. And I tell you the truth, he's already come. It was John the Baptist. And the religious establishment of the day didn't understand it. They didn't see him and they rejected him and they killed him. And Jesus says, the same thing is going to be true of the Son of Man. The same thing will be true of the Messiah. It is expected that the Messiah, along with God's prophet, will suffer, will be rejected, will experience something that's going to look to the world like failure. It was true of Elijah. It was true of John the Baptist. It will be true also of Jesus. There is so much in this passage. We could spend weeks looking at Matthew 17. We could think about the deity of Christ itself for decades, even. But I want to think about what this passage shows us about what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean for us to walk through our lives with Jesus? And I think there are three things that this passage demonstrates for us, reminds us, and teaches us about the Christian life. Here's the first one. The Christian life is not lived on the mountain, but rather lived in the valley. Peter sees this vision of Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and he wants to stay on the mountain forever. Peter has found his retirement plan. Uh, He's going to build the tents. He's going to be on this mountain forever. Uh, One of my favorite commentators on the Gospels says that Peter always stands in for all believers. So as we are watching this account unfold, we are invited to think of ourselves kind of like Peter. Uh, We are experiencing this event through his eyes, which means just like Peter misses the point, we are welcome to think that we would also miss the point in the same way. Peter wants to stay on this mountain forever. He wants to enjoy glory without suffering. He wants to build the tents and stay there forever. And that's why it's important to note, verse 9 reminds us explicitly, that the Jesus who took them to the mountaintop 
is also the Jesus who brings them back down. Jesus takes them to the mountaintop and brings them back down to the valley because staying on the mountain is not an option on this side of glory. We are always called back to our ordinary experiences, back to our ordinary lives, to the ordinary faithfulness to which God has called us of taking up our cross and denying ourselves and following Christ. We are always called back there. And what that means for us is that we have to realize that the essence of the Christian life is not about keeping and getting an emotional or a spiritual high. It doesn't mean that we're trying to get on top of the mountain and and stay there. That is not the point of the Christian life. And if we think that the Christian life is really about sort of getting this spiritual high or this emotional high from our worship and our lives together, we're going to spend our lives trying to manufacture that feeling. One Christian author says we're going to become spiritual junkies, always on the lookout for what gives us that emotional experience. I think the essence of the Christian life is really about learning to walk with Jesus in the valley, about learning to walk with Jesus through the ups and downs of our ordinary experiences of taking up our crosses daily and denying ourselves and following him. There's a temptation that we have in the Christian life, particularly as we strive to live in this sort of culture, in this climate, in this moment in church history. And that temptation is to think that God's presence only feels like an emotional high. We can tend to think that God is most present when I feel him, when I experience him in that way. But what I want you to see, that could be dangerous. In fact, it is dangerous to think that way because if that is how we are thinking about what it means to experience God, we are going to be blind to God's presence in the lows. We will be blind to God's presence in the hardship, in the difficulties when things don't feel great and amazing. I am not saying that emotions are bad. That is not the point. That is not the takeaway. God made us with emotions. We are made to feel things. That is part of what it means to be human. Our emotions are a gift. But what the Bible is showing us, and even this passage is reminding us, is that there is no single emotion that is tied to God's presence. In fact, if you read the Psalms, you see this over and over and over again, that God is with the psalmist in the highs, God is with the psalmist in the lows. Now, what certainly happens is that our active perception of God's presence changes with our moods, but the reason this happens is because sin has broken our hearts. Sin disintegrates us. By that I mean it, it separates our hearts and our minds. And, and because of that, it's easy for us to forget what is most true when it doesn't feel true. Our experience, our perception of God's presence changes with our moods, but the fact of his presence for us in Christ never 
changes. One author, a guy named Alan Chappell, says this. He says, until God's work of redeeming reintegration is complete, our convictions and our emotions are often out of sync. And what he's simply saying there is that because we have not been fully put back together yet, we don't always feel to be true what is actually true. But the gospel is reintegrating us. It is putting us back together so that what is true begins more and more to feel true. And one of the things this also means for us is that worship, when we come together, even here this morning, worship is not about an escape from the realities of our daily lives. We're not coming together to be recharged spiritually and emotionally and sort of have a new spiritual high each week that we sort of burn off through the rest of the week. Worship is about bringing all of who we are, all of what we are experiencing. It's bringing all of those things together and bringing them before God and processing our entire lives in the light of the gospel, in the light of what is true. The Christian life isn't lived on the mountaintop. It is lived in the valley. But there in the valley, we are being put back together by God's grace. So that's the first one. The Christian life is not lived on the mountain, but in the valley. It's also the longest one. Um, So two and three are... Shorter. Here's the second. In the Christian life, being is greater than doing. Being is greater than doing. Peter has great intentions here. In verse 4, when Peter starts talking, you can tell that he is ready to get busy for Jesus. But God has other ideas. You see it in verse 5, God interrupts Peter while he's talking, which is just amazing. I just Again, just marvel at the fact Peter is just blurting off the top of his head. Mark says he does not know what he is saying, and God just interrupts. And sometimes that's what grace looks like. God just interrupts our thoughtless um, speech, we'll say. Interrupts, says, listen, Peter, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Stop planning. Stop trying to be busy and listen. God cares more about who we are than he cares about what we do. Or to put that in a different way, what God is doing in us is more important than what we are doing for him. Now, I'm not saying that doing doesn't matter. We want to be obedient people. We want to be faithful people. But God wants our obedience to go all the way down. That our obedience is not just some outward action, some outward behavior change. God wants obedience that comes from a heart that has been transformed by the truth of the gospel. He wants obedience that goes all the way down. Which means, again, that the gospel is not something we master. 
The gospel is something that masters us. We live in a world that says, don't just stand there, do something. But even as we think that, God interrupts us and says, don't just do something, stand there. That's the point. The gospel is mastering us. We're not called to go be busy for Jesus, but to recognize what Christ has done and is doing in us. Being is greater than doing. That's the second point. Here's the third one. Suffering and rejection and failure and learning are all expected outcomes in the Christian life. Suffering, rejection, failure, and learning are all expected outcomes in the Christian life. That is true of Elijah. It's true of John the Baptist, Jesus reminds us here. It's also true of Jesus. And friends, Jesus has reminded us in Matthew 16, it's true of us as well. And that's hard for us. Because we expect so often that we're going to have great success. Or that we're going to find great meaning and purpose and obedience in the Christian life. But those things are not promised to us. What is promised to us is that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And that our lives, this side of glory, are going to look a lot like denying ourselves taking up our cross, and following him. At its most fundamental, we could say so many things about the cross. But one of the things the cross shows us in big, bold, underlined print is that God measures success and failure differently than we do. That's what success looked like in the gospel, The rejection of the Messiah, his crucifixion and death looked like success and the world did not understand it. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the cross is a stumbling block to people. Because no one's thinking like, oh yeah, I want to be on that guy's team. The cross reminds us that God measures success and failure differently than we do. And that means that misunderstanding in the Christian life, conflict in the Christian life, hostility and failure and suffering and rejection. Those are all normal parts of the Christian life. You might say that those are features, not bugs, of the Christian life. And what that means for us is that God is using everything to shape us. Everything is formation. God is using the great moments, but God is using especially the hard moments to shape us. There are times in your life you might put forth great energy and expenditure trying to do something great, and you might, by all worldly standards, fail at that thing. And God is using even that. God never calls us to success. God calls us to faithfulness. And he promises that the hard things we experience in this life are not meaningless. 
The hard things are the places he is making us more and more like Christ, who suffered and was rejected and ultimately crucified by the religious leaders of his day. Friends, when we say God is at work, that's what we mean. God is at work in the hard things. God is at work in the difficulty. God is at work in the good things. But in all of those things, God is at work and he's using those things to shape us more and more into the image of Christ, our Savior. So those are the three things. The Christian life is not on the mountain, but in the valley. The Christian life tells us that being is greater than doing. And the third thing is that suffering and rejection and failure and learning are all expected outcomes, expected parts of the Christian life. And honestly, that might be a discouraging message, if not for a few other things we see in this passage. Here's one. Jesus is with us in the valley. Jesus doesn't stay on the mountain and send the disciples back down alone. Jesus comes off the mountain with them. He comes off the, disciple, off the mountain with the disciples. He comes off the mountain with us because Jesus is always Emmanuel. He is always God with us. Think of Psalm 23, which talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but I'm comforted because you are with me. Jesus is always with us, which means even if it feels like it, we are never actually alone in the valley. We're never alone. But more than that, we are united to Christ. We are so united to Christ that what is true of him is true of us. And what that means is that the Father's delight and approval of Jesus is his delight and approval of us. Think of what God says in verse 5. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What is true of Jesus is true of you. When God says that to Jesus, he is saying that to you because you have been united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. What is true of him is true of you. You are his beloved child with whom he is well pleased. That is the truest thing about you. That is more true than any circumstance, any experience, any emotion that you have ever felt. You are God's beloved child with whom he is well pleased. And let me tell you, if that will sink down into your bones, that will free you to be at least okay with the idea that suffering and failure are part of the Christian life. Because what that means is we don't have to justify our existence by succeeding. Because our very existence has been justified by God himself who made us and redeemed us in Christ. You are free to fail in your life because you are God's beloved child with whom he is well pleased and your worth and your value and your dignity are not up for a vote. You are free to learn and to admit you don't know everything. You are free to repent and to turn away from sin and to acknowledge that you have in fact done something wrong on occasion. You are free to do all of those things because the grounds of your worth are Christ 
himself. You are God's beloved child with whom he is well pleased. But more than that, even, when we fail, when we miss the point, when we're ready to set up tents and Jesus is reminding us we're going back down the hill, when we sin, when we are afraid, when we are hurting, when we are ashamed, verses 7 and 8 are also true of us. Jesus comes to us. Jesus touches us. He's not afraid. He's not grossed out. He's not disappointed when we miss the point. But he comes to us, he touches us, and he says, rise, don't be afraid. And he lifts our heads, and he lifts our eyes, and we see Christ alone there before us. Friends, it is the very grounds of our hope in the Christian life. Christ alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. We recognize, we acknowledge that we so often think that this life you've called us to is too difficult to live. Uh, We confess that we prefer the idea that we could get on a mountaintop and stay there. We prefer the idea that we don't need to learn, we don't need to repent, we don't need to fail. And that if we just do the right things, good things will happen to us. Father, remind us again and again that you are at work in the good things, but especially the hard things in our lives. You are making us more and more like Christ. You are with us in the valley. And Father, you're teaching us more and more that you evaluate success differently than we do. We pray this morning that you would comfort us in the hope of our union with Christ, that what is true of him is true of us, and that because of the Holy Spirit's work, we are your beloved children with whom you are well pleased. Father, let us live into that identity day after day after day. When we fail, let us cling to it. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work here, that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in Christ's work on our behalf and in the identity we have in him. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.